Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Turbulent times, with crusty hordes of the unwashed gathering around some of the nation's biggest figures. And that's just our lockdown listenership. Still, with football now well and truly back, we look ahead to some momentous action this weekend. High Liga, 110 games coming up in 38 days. And it all begins today. Italy, the Copper Semis, finally conclude. But how will legs spread this far apart affect the players' focus? Plus, what's that coming over the hill? Is it a Monza? The return of Berlusconi. We'll have Bundesliga news too and chapter 13 of our Champions League story, 2004-05 and the miracle in Istanbul. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Together, listener, thanks for joining us in our bubble. Alongside you, we've got James Horncastle there. Good day to you all. Good day to you, James. You're last day in the Cotswolds, I think. Yes, I'm coming back. Copper Italia time, James, at BT. Good Lord. Alvaro Romeo's with us as well. Hello, Alvaro. Hello, James. How are you? Very well, thank you. And long time no see, Mr. Sasha Gurionov. Hello, James. Great to be back. Well, it's, it's fabulous to see you. I can see, Sasha, you know, because we've got a little FaceTime. Technology. You've you got a lockdown haircut on, Sash. I want to feel the part. If I'm incarcerated, I want to look it. I want to feel it. Yeah. I am it. You do look it. Great to see you all. This time next week, Premier League will be back on. Incredible, no? What's that? <laughs> well, I tell you, if you're curious, James, listen to our show coming up Sunday night, Monday morning, because that's going to be a special info package about this Premier League, how things stand. And also, on Monday, Tuesday, the FPL pod returns as well. FPL currently featuring unlimited transfers. Wow. Yeah. All right. Now, that's not the biggest news of the week. Probably that might go to Tuesday's Announcement from League One that they're going to join League Two in ending their season. This following a formal vote by the clubs. That means Coventry and Rotherham are promoted to the Championship. Coventry, we were discussing this in just our last show, hadn't finished in the top five of any league since 1967. Rotherham have spent the last four seasons either being promoted to or relegated from the Championship. So that's nice. Swindon Crew and Plymouth promoted from League Two to League One. There is a plan for playoffs for League One and League Two to happen. I'm not sure when, but there's a Totally Football League show that's out at the moment, and I bet they'll have the answer there. Meantime, James, speaking of leagues declaring, Serie C in Italy, which is exciting because... Because Monza uh, are coming up to Serie B, and Monza were taken over by Silvio Berlusconi and Adriano Galliani, and have been kind of run like a top-flight side, certainly got a budget which would already put them towards the kind of upper tier of the second division. So we're now only maybe a season removed from the prospect of Berlusconi being back in Serie A. Can you imagine Monza just going slightly up the road to play either Milan or Inter at San Siro? It's going to happen, James. It's going to happen. Incredible. He's apparently set aside 30 million euros a war chest, a transfer kitty for their City of B campaign. He's had to play down talks that, uh, of reports that he's, uh, he wants to bring in Zlatan. You know, Zlatan, who his contract is up in just a matter of days at Milan. Um, just imagine that. Um, I, think, I think it won't happen. Um, they don't have the budget. I think all of that 30 million would have to just go on his, uh, on his salary. But yeah, exciting times to see. Berlusconi, maybe Galliani in his kind of mustard-coloured tie back. That'd be brilliant. Right. Berlusconi, of course, who has so much skin in today's Champions League story, the 2004-05 road to Istanbul. All right, well, we'll we'll hear more about Italy later on with the Coppa Italia semifinals, as you mentioned, Friday and Saturday. They had cup semifinals in Germany as well, didn't they, Sasha? 
Yes, they did. Um, unfortunately, they didn't seem to be that intriguing because despite the fairy tale Zara Bruken story, um, uh, they are from Regionalliga, which is Division 4, and they made it all the way to the semis. Unfortunately, when they came up against top-flight opposition, you could see that one team has actually played a few games and the other one is not only of a lower level, but also hasn't kicked the ball in three months. Um, and Leverkusen absolutely wiped the floor with them. Uh, I mean, it was 3-0. It was quite a, an interesting ground because sort of one-sided, mostly terracing a few seats. Um, but Zabrück stood no chance. And I thought also Bayern were largely pedestrian against Eintracht Frankfurt, to be honest. Um, I, I think they could have gone up another several gears and beaten them. Miserable, though, for Saarbrück to get all the way to a cup semi-final against Bayer Leverkusen, and then their fans can't come and watch their biggest game in their history. But, but yeah, yet, yet another maybe possibility that would have maybe had some advantage with the home fans. It's just, but when it's all stripped away, I think what you're seeing at the moment um, with the teams playing behind closed doors, uh, really stripping away all other factors, I think basically you can see that the skill shines through. Um, mm-hmm. And for, for Zabrick, and actually I just looking at the backstory, they were actually trying to end up in the French League back in the day after the Second World War. So quite, quite, a, um, quite an interesting background there. And yes, for them to go all this way and the big occasion doesn't quite happen. Shame. Hmm. Probably be title contenders in France, wouldn't they? What would they be? League <laughs> One, do you think? The well, only team playing. <laughs> they beat Milan in 1955, didn't they? In, uh, at least in one game, I think at San Siro, where um, they came back from 3-2 down to win 4-3. Um, up against the likes of Cesare Maldini, Nils Liedholm, Lorenzo Buffon. So, yeah. Extraordinary. I mean, could have been their most famous night since then. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Meantime, there has been action as well in Liga Nosh. Uh, we've been following with great interest the the duel at the top between Benfica and Porto. Benfica taking the lead, Porto taking it again. What happened this midweek, James? I think Porto gained more ground, didn't they? Yeah, they got two points clear now because Benfica only drew with Portimonense thanks to Junior Tavares' uh, wonderful long-range strike. But Porto won their game with something a bit special as well. Wonderful finish from uh, Tekahito Corona. Crowded out, it looked, by a, a, a load of defenders. Managed to kind of invent this looping shot across goal and into the far corner. It was uh, one of the strikes of, uh, of the restart, James. Let's put it like that. Mm, okay. Well, we'll talk more about the Bundesliga, the Coppa Italia semis, all sorts of stuff later on. But next up, Alvaro, you're going to bust out a big Liga preview on us. It will be my pleasure. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Karim Benzema, el balón al medio, que riesgo, que riesgo, que riesgo, el robo, que riesgo porque se queda solo Tello, Tello, Tello. Yeah, that was the last round of action in Spain 93 days ago. Christian Teo giving Real Betis the, the winner against Real Madrid and helping to knock the Madrileños back off the top of La Liga, a position they'd only just taken after beating Barca in the Clásico. Well, anyway, we're all set for everything to get back underway. Among the delights in store for us, not just virtual fans noise but actual virtual fans in video which i'm not sure how that's going to work but we've probably all seen the 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 the, the sample images it, it looks looks actually quite entertaining but anyway on the field 11 games to play alvaro take us through this first of all at the top barcelona beaten 2-0 by real madrid and coming into the the suspension they were in a, a pretty rotten run of form with all sorts of problems off field as well between Messi and, and, and the, the board of directors. The return of Suarez and the fact that Messi's had three months of rest, how, how much does that set them up for this finale? Well, I think that uh, Suarez coming back is going to help a lot because uh, Antoine Griezmann is not offering the attacking threat that uh, he was expected to offer, not yet at least. Uh, the best thing that can happen to Barcelona actually is that football is back uh, because we'll forget about the salary reductions and the rumors about which players uh, can be used to make Lautaro Martinez cheaper in a potential deal uh, which is something that I think that doesn't go down very well with Barcelona and with the supporters and probably with uh, anyone who likes finances because Barcelona has been for love and at the same time they are talking about signing one of the best 
most expensive strikers in the world. Uh, I think that Messi is going to be more or less fit, even though uh, he had some soft tissue uh, problems uh, last week. Semedo is that player who has made the headlines lately because uh, he was spotted having a a barbecue in a, in a gathering with 20 people and if it wasn't a barbecue it was just a gathering of 20 people and in Catalonia last week uh, only 15 people could gather not 20 so Semedo was doing something illegal and he was obviously not following the La Liga protocols either so let's see how it works uh, Kike Setien uh, took over Barcelona back in January uh, he didn't have enough time to to implement his ideas in the club and I think that he hasn't had the time neither now because uh, really? he has, he has trained only two weeks with the full squad ah. and uh, yeah it wasn't even a pre-season it was like a short pre-season for Kike Setien so I believe that Real Madrid has a little bit more certainties they've got a bigger squad and uh, if we're going to play every 72 hours I think this calendar favors whoever has a bigger squad and Real Madrid has like 10 options up front Barcelona is a bit short in that department and I think that this can make Real Madrid a slightly favorite that's plus uh, obviously Eden Hazard coming back. Uh, what's interesting is the fact that they won't be playing their games at the Bernabeu because of the building work that they'd scheduled there for what they thought was the end of the season. So instead they'll be using the uh, B-team's ground, which is only, what, about 6,000 capacity? Playing in that tiny ground, which they're not used to, do you think that's going to impact? Could it actually benefit them, the fact that it's a more compact ground you're not going to have empty stands around? To be honest, I think that Alfredo and Stefano dimensions, uh, when it comes to the pitch dimensions, are exactly uh, what the Bernabeus are. So in that sense, I think that there won't be any difference at all. And from the basis of what we have seen in the Bundesliga, the best teams are winning and the talent is imposing itself. So I think that the same thing will end up happening with Real Madrid as well. Alvaro, just, just a question. Um, you're saying they're doing the work on the Bernabeu. How can they afford it? I mean, it seems to be all the building projects are getting postponed everywhere, yet uh, Real is still getting the work done. Yeah, I think Real Madrid uh, was... Uh, more prepared than any other big club to navigate the situation. And uh, I think that the best example of that is the fact that uh, while Barcelona and Atlético de Madrid uh, have to be forloved by the Spanish government, uh, and Barcelona actually in a very bad way because the players have to play the salaries of uh, the rest of the of the staff, Real Madrid uh, managed to do it well. I mean, uh, the, the players only had the 10% of the salary reduction. 20% if La Liga wouldn't resume, and they had some savings in there. So they wanted to do this uh, Santiago Bernabeu works uh, ASAP. And this uh, pandemic, unfortunately, this pandemic has presented a good opportunity for Real Madrid to do it. That was the sweet sound to Spanish ears of Atletico Madrid. Putting Liverpool out of the Champions League. Wow. Atletico, though, facing a real battle to re-qualify for that competition. They are one of five teams in contention for the last two Champions League spots after Real Madrid and Barca bag theirs. Alvaro, a huge game for Atleti this weekend because they're at your lot, Athletic Bilbao. Missing out on the top four, particularly with the financial crisis that's around football right now. How bad would it hit Atletico? Very badly. I wouldn't know if using the word catastrophic would be too hyperbolic, but it would be almost the reality of what it would be. Because last summer, Atletico de Madrid did a gigantic investment, uh, signing the likes of Joao Felix, one of the most expensive signings in La Liga history. So uh, they bought the player like that and they made a huge investment because they needed, number one, immediate success, and number two, they needed to qualify for Champions League. And the thing is that what happened at Liverpool it's a one-off for Atletico de Madrid. It's still to be seen whether they can continue with their form in Europe because uh, Atletico was definitely not better than Liverpool in that tire. He, they were not the favourites. And I think that the real Atletico is uh, the Atletico who lies sixth in the, the La Liga table. In the same way that for Real Madrid and Barcelona, the returns of Eden Hazard and uh, Luis Suárez is going to help, Diego Costa is going to play for Atletico de Madrid. Uh, he had a problem in his neck uh, for, uh, for a long time in winter. Uh, he played in Anfield, but he wasn't fully fit. And now El Lagarto is fully fit for the rest of uh, the competition, which is good news for Atletico de Madrid, who, by the way, um, they have had some internal news as well, because the assistant of Diego Pablo Simeone, Mono Burgos, um, said that he was going to leave the team at the end of the season. So 
It's a time of change for Atlético de Madrid. I believe that what happened in Liverpool uh, has to be a booster, despite having happened three months ago. And uh, qualifying for Champions League is a must for them, definitely. Uh, I want to see how it all pans out for Atlético de Madrid, because if any club relies on uh, the home supporters and relies on the good spirits between Simeone and uh, the Wanda Metropolitano crowd, is Atlético de Madrid. I mean, Simeone is like a... It's like a toastmaster in that stadium. And many times Atletico de Madrid wins the games because Simeone and the supporters managed to lift the players' spirits. I don't know if uh, that is going to go against Atletico de Madrid, the fact that they are playing behind closed doors. Well, they're at Bilbao this weekend. And Bilbao yeah. currently battling for a Europa League spot. That, that game's going to be one o'clock on Sunday. Is that a must-watch, Alvaro? It is, of course. Uh, and Atletico de Madrid and Atletico de Bilbao, they always, they always present uh, good games, uh, normally very physical. And I want to see what's happening there um, as well, because Atletico de Bilbao, I believe that they are a very, very tough team to beat. Uh, perhaps they are not the most uh, attractive one to watch, uh, but at the same time, uh, physically, they can definitely follow Atletico de Madrid's rhythm. For me, it's going to be the first game without Tari Chaduriz. I think that this is going to be... Mm, what uh, marks the game in some, some sort of way because uh, in the 70th or 80th minute I will be like, uh, yeah, this is the time for Ari, Ari Chaduriz to come in and score a header or something like that, but he, he will no longer be there because he had to retire in uh, in the most unwanted way, like not having played the, the cup final against Real Sociedad. Well, that game coming up at one o'clock then, Alvaro, on Sunday. Later that day, Real Madrid will be taking on a bar that's at 6.30 well, Saturday evening, or night actually, it's nine o'clock kickoff for Barcelona's trip to Mallorca. The relegation battle uh, is vast and complex, Alvaro. Every team in the bottom half of La Liga, I think, could get sucked in. For the moment, the bottom three is Mallorca, Leganes and Espanyol, who just a year on from getting into Europe are now bottom of the pile, six points from safety and on their third managers of the season. What prospects do they have of, of, of escaping the drop? I think that Espanyol did such a bad uh, first half of the season that they'll be paying for that, despite having uh, changed managers and having Abelardo now, who is uh, one of those best possible managers you can have to avoid relegation. But uh, I think that Abelardo just came a little bit too late. Of course, it's going to help uh, the Periquitos, the fact that they are not in Europe anymore, because Wolves uh, just destroyed them uh, in the Europa League. Um, Leganes is going to find it difficult to stay in the top flight, I believe. And uh, Mallorca too. I think that these three who are actually now there, uh, they are the, the ones who are going to get relegated because I cannot see Celta de Vigo uh, falling down uh, as soon as Denis Suarez, Rafinha and Diago Aspas start playing good football. They're going to uh, clinch many points. And Eibar and uh, Alaves, for example, I believe that they've got as well the know-how to stay in the top flight. The Lautaro Martinez move, how done is that and how how's it all looking in terms of the contrapartita? Lautaro would like to go and play at Barcelona at one stage in his career. He would like to play with Lionel Messi, who plays with uh, national team level and plays very well with him up front. I believe personal terms have, have been agreed, but as far as Inter are concerned, they haven't received an offer uh, from Barcelona so far, and they are pointing them in the direction of the buyout clause in uh, in his contract, which is in excess of 100 million. I think it's 112 million and expires um, July 7th. And they... Uh, aren't particularly, they don't find the players that are being offered in exchange particularly appetising um, at this moment in time. And we have, to, we have to reflect on the fact that Inter are in quite a strong position at the moment because they've, they've sold Mario Cardi um, to, to Paris Saint-Germain. That, that deal ended up going through at kind of a slightly discounted rate. So they're not really in need of money in terms of, you know, getting to that June 30th landmark where you know every team usually has to have their accounts in order for financial fair play into are in a pretty good position like that so they can play hardball I do think it will come down to the players wish in the end and and, and whether the deal that Barcelona put on the table for Inter is is acceptable um, Inter did make an offer for Dries Mertens when Mertens was still umming and ahhing what to do with his future uh, Mertens will now is now expected to, to sign a new deal with Napoli 
So they are in the market for a striker. Um, there's no doubt about that. I think they, they they were going to be in the market for a striker anyway um, because Conte likes to have 15 different players for every position. Um, and even then, his team's short and doesn't have the depth that, uh, that they need. But... Um, yeah, I think Barcelona will keep pushing for Lautaro and I think if if they can come to an agreement with Inter, Lautaro would go. Um, not least because it's raining and raining and raining all the time in, in Milan at the moment and his uh, his girlfriend who likes to work out on the balcony can't work out and uh, we know the weather is better in Barcelona than it is in Milan. It, it can be as well, uh, James, the, the classic uh, embarrassing move of Barcelona as it happened with Neymar last summer. Uh, mm. There was a contingent of Barcelona uh, that tried to sign Neymar. Uh, Abidal was um, the most recognizable face in that contingent, and they couldn't do it because uh, for the last couple of years, every time Barcelona goes for expensive players, when it comes to talk about how are you going to pay it, Barcelona always says that they don't have the money and they want to include <laughs> players in there. And you cannot, you cannot do serious business like that. And it's been like this for the last couple of summers. Uh, first, I think that Barcelona should address what to do with Philippe Coutinho and how to make sure that they meet the financial fair play regulations this summer because they, want, they needed to sell some players in order to get there. So there is a little bit of wishful thinking in Barcelona with getting Lautaro and all that, but at the same time, reality is always uh, splashing in Barcelona's face at some point when they go for expensive player. Is Griezmann mentioned in this conversation at all? No, Antoine Griezmann is not mentioning that. No, no, he, mm. he's going to get some time. Okay. Wages for Inter would be too difficult. And Inter also looking at the fact that they've got, believe it or not, Alexis Sanchez. And Alexis is fit, um, which he hasn't been for uh, much of the season. He's had the time to kind of you know, recharge his batteries a little bit. I mean, he's had that quite a lot over recent years. But in some respects, they have a, a replacement in-house uh, for Lautaro. We may see him on Saturday, James, down in Naples yeah. in the... Coppa Italia semi-final which we'll be doing as you mentioned on BT Sport anyway more talk about that kind of thing later on Alvaro thanks for that splendid Liga roundup next up it's time to fire up our retro rockets and head back to Champions League 2004-2005 and as the clock ticks towards 90 minutes Jones takes it towards the corner flag and uh, well he seems to have flicked the ball up and under his shirt here and uh, well now his teammates are forming a sort of a cordon around him in the corner there and well I've seen some elaborate time wasting in my time but this really does. At Paddy Power we know time wasting is something that grinds everyone's gears but after months without the beautiful game well it just makes for more football doesn't it? Ah football is back all is forgiven Paddy Power 18plusbegambleaware.org on Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere. This is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Champions League, Chapter 13. It was the 50th season of Europe's top cup competition and it was a special one. Death threats, laundry baskets, shit on a stick and more on the road to Istanbul and one of the greatest comebacks mankind has ever seen. Sasha, you were there, of course, in Istanbul that night. An amazing season, an amazing climax. Just first off, how much do you miss that Liverpool side? For me, the Benitez era will always be very special because Liverpool became a serious European side and I think for Liverpool, historically, that's been quite important. And of course, um, you know, there was the 20-year gap to Heisel uh, in the European ban and it took Liverpool a very long time to return there. And of course, I think because financially, Liverpool was so far behind, for example, Chelsea, uh, in mid-noughties, um, you know, the European Cup offered a respite. And I think that that win in 2005 almost uh, kept Liverpool relevant in people's minds. And you have to remember that since that 2005, it's not like Liverpool kicked on and capitalised on that because there was a few ownership issues. They were so far behind. They never really caught up and they had to drop quite low before rising again. So between the two European Cup wins in 2005 and 2019, Liverpool only, only actually won two trophies. Um, so that's... I know there's so many things that make that era special, but I suppose it's also, I think being feared in Europe was psychologically quite important for a lot of Liverpool fans in a, in a good way. Their team was being feared in Europe, not, not Liverpool fans, of course. Um, and it just made, it, it made that team exciting to support. It made that team, you know, traveling around Europe, coming somewhere like the San Siro, you know, up against Inter. I, mean, I know I'm jumping a few years forward and the place is going nuts. And, 
Interisti think they're going to win, and then Torres on the turn, turning and you know firing the shot into the bottom corner, and the whole place falls quiet. We all go crazy, and then the whole place sort of rises up again. And it's these sort of experiences that Liverpool fans had. I think it's just impossible to forget. Well, that season. Coming into the competition, four-time European champions Liverpool, but as you mentioned, it had been a, a long time since they'd been relevant. They barely featured in the later stages since the competition's rebranding. They failed to make it out of the group two seasons before. The previous season to this one, they hadn't even qualified at all. And this campaign was, again, almost over before it even started. Match day six of the group stages, Liverpool at home to Olympiacos and needing to win by two clear goals and promptly then going a goal down to the Greeks thanks to a Rivaldo free kick. But, and stop me if this sounds familiar, inspired by Steven Gerrard, three second-half goals turn it around. And who gets the crucial third? From Liverpool's point of view, anyone will do. Mella, lovely cushion header for Gerrard! Sasha, wow, were you there at Anfield? No, I wasn't. I was actually doing the Likely Lads in Barbados. We walked around so many bars. Hang on and a no sec, one... just for any of our younger listeners, can you just explain that statement? It's um, it's back to the comedy show. I think it's the 80s or late 70s. So basically these guys 70s, are trying, yeah. spending, spending the whole day trying to avoid the result. Um, and I think it's probably impossible to do now, but we had to watch the game on delay. And I spent, I think, about four hours trying not to find out what happened and then watched it as live. Uh, and the bloke came in and sat next to me in the second half. He managed to just mess it up because like a, a news line came up. So he actually knew what happened, but he didn't spoil it for me. So, yeah, there was basically two of us watching it in the bar whilst all this crazy stuff was happening at Anfield. But a lot about that game is down to, to the bench. And I think this is what... Rafael Benitez had to do throughout that whole season, manage injuries. Um, all small players who've never really featured for Liverpool again, like Sinal Pongol, Neil Mella, they were the guys who came in the second half and rescued that particular match. I mean, also Steven Gerrard, he uh, he missed three group games because of injury. Uh, so he had a lot of ground to make up. Liverpool were actually, for four of those games in the groups, Liverpool were actually pretty horrible, completely nondescript, couldn't score. The only goal was uh, scored for Liverpool um, at Deportivo La Coruña by Jorge Andrade, who is obviously Rafael Honigstein's favourite and obviously ours now as well. And the campaign didn't really get going until the Olympiacos game. Right. Well, after that, the round of 16 awaited, which saw Liverpool facing Bayer Leverkusen, beating them 3-1 home and away. And that brought, James, a quarterfinal meeting with Juventus, the first time that these two clubs had faced each other since the Heisel tragedy. Yeah, and Juventus uh, had such a glittering team in terms of uh, personnel that were there before um, the breakup. Uh, brought on by Calciopoli. Um, so, you know, Buffon, Churam, Cannavaro, um, Nedved, Ibrahimovic. Um, and they were flying in the league. They were going to the win City out. And Benitez looks back on this game as being as important, if not more important, than uh, uh, than Istanbul. Um, certainly, as, as Sasha was saying uh, with the Olympiacos game, I think some of the players felt that after putting this Juventus team out, there wasn't a team in Italy that they couldn't beat, um, particularly when you look at the second leg where they were missing so many players um, and managed to set up in a classic kind of Benitez tactical system and and uh, and end up uh, getting the nil-nil draw that they needed to uh, to see out Juve. Um, Juve had put out Real Madrid um, the, the round before with another kind of um, late, late, late show from Marcelo Zalajeta, as we saw what, a few years before in, in Barcelona. So... I think this only seemed to kind of reinforce uh, Liverpool's belief that they could, they could maybe do it. I mean, again, I th- I do think uh, Sasha saying that the Olympiacos game kicking things off. If you look at Liverpool's results, you know, prior to that Olympiacos game, it's just extraordinary. Kind of, they'd already lost five games in the league. Um, they were seventh. They'd drawn against Aston Villa. I mean, it's not just unlikely for the you know kind of position they found themselves in at half time in Istanbul it's 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 unlikely in, in just of where Liverpool were at generally speaking um, that season. I think that one of the things that marked the performance of English clubs in this Champions League is the fact that Chelsea and Liverpool were very speculative as well and this is something that maybe uh, wasn't in the description of uh, English clubs before 2004-2005 normally they were attacking minded or if anything, they, they, what you saw was what you got. And Chelsea and Liverpool were 
different. Chelsea and Liverpool knew how to win the game in, a, in an Italian way, if you want to put it that sort of generic way. And that was very remarkable for me. Everyone remembers Luis Garcia for what happened next, and we'll get to that in a moment, James. But let's not forget the goal he did score against Juventus, where the ball kind of just bounces into his path outside the area, and he hits this rasping volley, uh, which uh, loops over Gianluigi Buffon. Luis Garcia! What an effort! Tell you what, this was a Champions League season of great goals. Um, you know, there's the the one in the uh, the Chelsea Barcelona game from a certain Ronaldinho. So much great football in this in this uh, season. Well, let's get on to Chelsea because they were awaiting Liverpool down the road. Their first season, of course, under Jose Mourinho, and their route to the semi-final with Liverpool had been colourful. After winning their group, which featured, of course, Mourinho's old club Porto, Chelsea then in the last 16 ran up against his other old club, Barcelona. Jose rather cheekily began the first leg by predicting both lineups. Then after Chelsea had lost 2-1 at the Camp Nou, revealed his darker side, accusing referee Anders <laughs> Frisk of consorting with Frank Rijkaard at half-time. Uh, leading to death threats for the referee and his eventual retirement from officiating. Mourinho was given a two-game ban, although it only came into effect after the second leg at Stamford Bridge, which was one of the greatest games ever seen on the Fulham Road. Damien Duff with a corner. In towards John Terry. He's there! Captain's goal from John Terry! Chelsea and Barcelona were two of the best teams in Europe by that stage already. A year after, they were going to play a really nice tire as well. Barcelona won the league that year and they got ready to win the Champions League as well. They were ready for that. They had Deco, Juli, Samuel Eto'o, Belletti, new players that season. And they were all very good and they made a great companion for Ronaldinho, who scored probably the most special goal I've ever seen that night at Stamford Bridge. have to say that... Uh, the fourth goal of Chelsea comes after a blatant fault on Victor Valdez and should have been cancelled. So when Jose Mourinho, again, complains about the decisions that go against him, uh, he seems to forget uh, very selectively the decisions that go in his favour. If you don't remember how this game went, it's well worth going and checking out because it is an extraordinary match. Chelsea roar into this 3-0 lead after just 19 minutes. And then Barcelona begin to come back, a penalty converted by Ronaldinho, and then... This piece of extraordinary magic which puts them through on away goals. Now Ronaldinho. Oh, it's a terrific goal. Wonderful, wonderful goal. Absolutely breathtaking. Ronaldinho, you just didn't see it coming. There are so many defenders around Ronaldinho and he hits it from a standstill and the ball is so kind of close. Um, to his his right foot. It's almost like he was taking a penalty without without any kind of run-up. And the trajectory of the shot, the solution he finds, is unlike any other goal I've seen before or since. Um, Czech certainly wasn't expecting it, thought there was no way through for Ronaldinho from there. And it was just indicative of a player who was doing things that no one else could do um, at that time in European football. Um, the reigning Ballon d'Or holder at the time um, and yeah I think again for, for Chelsea to overcome that team that Barcelona team with that talent because they've just signed Samuel Eto'o as well and Eto'o throughout this game is a threat um, they've got Deco who's a Champions League winner Ludovic Juli starts this game who was a Champions League finalist the year before then Iniesta comes on and Iniesta hits the post this was Mourinho as we saw at the, <laughs> the final whistle Again, just kind of uh, playing to the crowd and being this kind of uh, arch antagonist, the guy who would predict lineups, as you say, but also it seemed that every substitution he made, every tactical setup he made was right. Nothing could stop him. Nothing. Until a ghost goal. Well, John Terry's header put Chelsea through and next up for them were Bayern Munich in the quarterfinals where, again, they had a 4-2 win. Jose Mourinho now serving his touchline ban, hiding famously in the laundry basket at Stamford Bridge so that he could address his players. A 3-2 in Munich and Chelsea were through to this classic encounter, the semi-final with Liverpool, variously described as one of the most spirit-crushing bone encounters of recent times or, more poetically, on a stick. Goalless at the bridge, 
and then decided at Anfield by this goal that may or may not have happened. At the Bridge Pod, a Chelsea FC podcast says, did Luis Garcia's ghost goal cross the line? Gerard with space, helps in towards Barros, he's beaten, tipped to it, the goalkeeper made contact, Luis Garcia was it across the line, Galas hooked it away, goal! Again, I thought this at the time and I will take this um, idea to my grave because if the goal is not given, uh, Czech walks and it's a penalty because he absolutely cleaned out Barros. So it's either also you want to face a penalty and play 90 minutes with 10 men or would you take the goal? And I, th- I think so. I, I, th- I think it's, it's fairly straightforward. Um, and it's, it's curious that the two main events in that game happened 90 minutes apart. But Chelsea had all the time to get back into the game. This is the Chelsea team that I, th- I think is something that does get overlooked. Okay, on the, other, on the one hand, there is one goal in two games in this semi-final, but Chelsea failed to score after scoring all those goals against Barcelona and uh, Bayern. Uh, so I think Liverpool did a remarkable defensive job on them because they restricted them to probably three, four chances across the two games. They managed to nullify Drogba. Drogba, who absolutely destroyed Bayern. Um, so I think Liverpool did an absolutely remarkable defensive job. So Liverpool through to the final, ushering in what would become a period of Premier League dominance. European football's uh, ultimate game, English sides in the final in each of the next five seasons. Mind you, as we enjoyed the strains of Ibambini, Fanu, uh, Giuseppe, Povia, the team they were facing in this final, Milan, had a pretty decent record themselves. Five-time winners on their second final in three years. James, that Milan side, do you miss them? Sheva, Crespo, Kaká, Maldini? I think we all miss AC Milan and nights like this, don't we? Because they haven't uh, enjoyed them for quite some time now, but particularly this period between 2003-2007, they were always there or thereabouts. I think particularly with Yap Stam coming in, so all of a sudden you had a defence which had Cafu, Stam and Nesta at centre-back and Maldini at left-back. I mean, come and have a go at that if you fancy it. It's... uh, it's very difficult to, to break down the midfield as well. I think very iconic with uh, Pirlo pulling the strings and either Ambrosini, Gattuso and Seydorf there. And Kaká, Kaká, who came from nowhere, you know, as, uh, as Ancelotti said, first day of training, it was like a shaft of light just coming through clouds and just shining on this preppy schoolboy from Sao Paulo, who uh, was very much the kind of archetype of the modern kind of attacking midfielder. And Sheva and Inzaghi, I think... It's curious looking looking at the their run to the final as well because you know they come up against Inter for a, a Milan derby in the in the quarterfinals. It's the second time in in three years that there's been a Milan derby in the knockout stages, and that will always be uh, remembered as the flare game with uh, the second leg where Esteban Cambiasso has a goal ruled out, and it looks like uh, Inter are, are uh, have got no chance because I think they're three 0 down on aggregate at that mm. stage, and it's an away goal. And all of a sudden, uh, bottles start raining down from the, the Coup de Nord on Dida's goal. And then flares start raining down on him as just as he starts to kind of toss the bottles away. And one hits him and he, he goes down. Um, he's lucky that it doesn't hit him in the face or the eye. It hits him in the shoulder. Um, and the game is abandoned. Milan go through um, what, 5-0 on aggregate, which means we don't get Adriano, who'd been absolutely incredible for Inter in, in that season. Um and then they're quite fortunate, really, to go through against uh, PSV, who reached the semi-final, the kind of revelation of that season, with Ambrosini scoring the 91st minute, um, the away goal that kind of seized them through. But this was a very, very good side. A side that reached the final again for the second time in three years. Of course, they've been champions at Old Trafford. They were ready to claim another title in Istanbul. <laughs> As the City by the Bosphorus rang out to the strains of Rimi Rimi Lay by Gulsarin, which of course had been Turkey's uh, contestant in Eurovision that year, picking up two votes. Istanbul lay there in all its splendour. Sasha, you were there. What was the mood among supporters? You know, the day of the game. Were you a little bit pinching yourself to find yourselves there? I think um, I think it was very it was joy. Uh, I mean, we went there actually for a week. Um, back 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 in those days you could still do that and um, 
you know, it was relatively cheap. This was before the Champions League final went completely nuts when you couldn't find any accommodation or get any tickets or anything. So we spent a week in Istanbul and it was a magnificent place um, full of history. The locals were genuinely quite, I think, excited to see so many Liverpool fans turn up. AC Milan fans only really came on the day. Um, and I, th- I, th- I think you, you could feel it in there and it was, it was certainly... Um, it was it was new ground for so many fans. It's like a generation of fans who haven't seen the dominant Liverpool, and this was kind of a very exciting uh, occasion for them as well. So, uh, when it came to the day, I think we were all really really up for it. Uh, and at the same time, Milan fans were actually very nice and friendly, but I found they were a little bit condescending. I think the confidence that Ancelotti and Maldini had in that in in, in their team winning, I think it's very much the Milan fans share that uh, they were clearly the favourites. They knew it, and I don't really think Milan fans themselves expected much of a resistance, to be honest. Mm. And they didn't get it to begin with. Within the first mm. minute, Paolo Maldini <laughs> had put uh, the Rossoneri ahead. Second goal, more of a tap-in from Crespo. That's about 38 minutes in. And then he rounds the first half off with an absolutely magnificent finish. First of all, the sublime through ball from Ricky Kakar. And then Crespo just puts it over Jersey Dudek. And it's done and dusted. We can all go home. Extraordinary Kaká in vertical for Crespo. Crespo, the tiro. Rete, Rete, Rete. It's time to Milan. There's a squad only in campo. Extraordinary. The way Liverpool sets up to put perhaps more pressure on Pirlo rather than Kaká and left him with so much room to operate. And I think the second goal summed it up because it's basically Kaká between the lines picking his ball to Shevchenko who slides it across to, to Crespo. And also the third goal, you know, he's there and Steven Gerrard isn't really sure how deep he's playing in the field. So Kaká so sends Gerrard for the echo, drops his shoulder, turns the other way, plays the ball. He just had so much room. And I think even for us in the stands, we could see that you needed Hamanon just to shackle this guy, just to stop this happening because he was getting so much room to play. It was beautiful to watch, obviously very painful, but it was like, I think... Perhaps the kids of today, they think Messi, Ronaldo, but when Kaká was at his peak, it was an absolutely outstanding, the best player in the world probably for me at the time. Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, yeah, I mean, that, uh, the third goal uh, at the end of the first half is, is, is one of the great Champions League final goals so in terms of uh, uh, that pass is like a knife through butter um, and, and, and the finish, uh, everything you'd want for to cap off a, what a stunning move that was, but... Ancelotti's right to, to to still claim this. I think that 45 minutes was some of the best football that has been seen in a Champions League final, regardless of who won or who lost. Um, yeah, they were they were magnificent, and a lot has been made of Milan's mood at halftime, um, which you know we had a piece on the Athletic where they spoke to the uh, a lot of people involved at Liverpool, the players, the coaching staff, and. That story that came out that Milan were already celebrating and already kind of jumping up and down and crying and and and, sh- and shouting that they won the cup is just is, is not is not true. They still went out hoping to see out the game, and they still played well, but for a seven minute period. So Cafu was the guy who I think kicked all that off by saying yes, we were celebrating at half time, and I think it's natural. Also, Stephen Gerrard talks about Gattuso's smile as he left the field at the end of the first half. I think it's natural that when you're 3-0 up at half-time, you feel like you're well on your way. But then, interestingly, a lot of the the Milan players, including Maldini, talk about there being actual squabbles in the dressing room rather than celebrations that Angelotti tells everyone to shut up. What's going on, meantime, in the Liverpool dressing room is really significant. Rafa makes the switch, the one that you and other Liverpool supporters have been dying for, Didi Haman coming on for Steve Finnan. And then, at least according to Jimmy Traore, Steven Gerrard asked Rafa to leave the room so that he can say a few words. Sasha, this has been called one of the great halftime speeches of all time. Uh, you presumably have it tattooed somewhere on your body. <laughs> I, I just find the whole concept quite odd. I think in situations like this, um, I think people sometimes maybe remember things slightly differently from each other just because of the heightened, I don't know, tension, alertness about what's going on, about the pressure. So I think perhaps the facts don't quite all connect up. But I think what we could what we could take from it is the fact, yes, you know, Traore was supposed to come off, but Finnan had an injury, so so Benitez had to change it. And I think he changed it into quite a sensible formation, um, actually, in and it's, you know, the way it, 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 it operated. Also, you get different accounts from different players in terms of how, how much they heard you'll never walk on or didn't. I think Carragher is fairly adamant you can't really hear anything. But I think perhaps they heard it when they were coming out. And I think fans at some point just turned around and said, look, we are, we've come all this way, we're 3-0 down, 
you know, we have to we have to do something. Let's be a little bit defiant. And again, I had different impressions of that you'll never walk alone. You know, I think some said it was like a prayer. Some said it was a bit like a requiem. For me, it was a bit like just be, just before we started singing, you'll never walk alone. Someone started singing, we're gonna win four three. And for some reason, I found that absolutely hilarious. And it kind of just cheered me up in that moment. And I think there was a certain line of thought that you know, if we get to go back in the first fifteen minutes, let's see what happens. And you know, in the end, Liverpool got three. Well, that's exactly what Steven Gerrard supposedly said at halftime. If we score one in the first 15 minutes against these, we'll win the game. And lo and behold, who pops up with the 3-1? It was Gerrard! Hello! Hello! Here we go! Great header. It's a really, really good header. But I don't think it's the most important one. I think the second one is more important. Hit by Schmitzer. You, know, you, you get one, and this, this is the stage where you need quick-fire, quick-fire goals, and I think it's Carragher. I think perhaps in the same athletic piece said that Liverpool had to score all those goals at the same time because a lot of those players, of course, played against Deportivo, and you know they've been playing so well up to that point, and suddenly, within a couple of minutes, the whole dynamic changes. So when the third goal went in, it actually seemed fairly logical. It's funny you mentioned Deportivo because... Looking at them, particularly people like Nesta, you can just see it written all over their face that, oh my God, it's happening again. Just over 12 months after the events there in, in, in uh, the Riazor. But they keep playing, I think, in contrast with, with, with that night. And they keep creating. And you know, I think the, the moment that was the real turning point for me, and obviously conceding three goals is a major setback, but they're still in the game. They still have a chance to win it. And Andrew Shevchenko has the chance to win it. And when Dudek makes that, what, those, that double save. That is when everyone at Milan knows it's not our night. It's not, bizarrely, even after being 3-0 up at halftime, the gods are against us tonight. And even when it came to that penalty, I think the, that was the mindset. What do we have to do? to get past this Liverpool side because something up there is behind them tonight and we can't get past it. Shevchenko, who'd scored the winning penalty in the 2003 final, here approaching the ball for his chance in the, in the shootout and it's just written all over his face, resignation. And Liverpool have done it. Sasha, what happens next? We're all around in tears, hugging and kissing. Oh. <laughs> and just thinking about it right now. Oh. Whoa. It's uh... <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Seriously, just just came so on. So good, man. Oh. You love Sasha. It, was it, that's extraordinary. That is extraordinary. I mean, there were plenty of it's, tears. It's on, the on... most beautiful moment you you get as a fan. There you go. Yeah, it was an extraordinary comeback for the neutrals. For people who travelled there, who had an emotional interest in the in the team, who for whom it was part of their life. I can't imagine what the what that set of circumstances to, to go from that low to that high in that shorter space of time m must have done. From an Italian perspective, you mentioned the gods, James, and I had, it kind of took me back a little bit to Badger's missed penalty in, in 1994. Just There was not even a sense of blame there. And people talk about, you know, was Ancelotti blamed, etc. Yeah, there are questions about Milan's mentality, particularly after what had happened the previous season. But there was almost a sense like, well, sometimes life's just going to do that to you and there's nothing, nothing that you can do about it. Yeah, and when they flew back, um, yeah, there's this, not an altercation, but there's a, there's a group of fans waiting for the Milan team and they tell them that they're not worthy of the shirt, um, that um, they need to, to work hard, all these kind of classic tropes that you hear. And Maldini goes and confronts them um, and basically says, never tell me that I haven't given 100% for this club, that, you know, I bleed this club, you know, this club is in my family. And that was, I think that one of the interesting things about that is his his relationship, certainly with the Cordova, the Ultras, almost ended there. Um, and you see it a few years later when he retires, even when they go back to Athens, they win the Champions League in 2007 against Liverpool, which is, you know, huge for, um, for Milan. When, uh, when he retires... Um, you see those banners in the Cordova at San Siro saying, Baresi is our captain, not not you. And that fracture really came about post-Istanbul, really, for him 
standing up for that team, for what they had done um, uh, in getting to the final and how well they played in the final. And to, to have that kind of knee-jerk reaction from a, a, an element of the support. So, But yeah, I think you're absolutely right in that there, there wasn't a sense of blame uh, for, for that team for the most part within the media and the wider Milan support. Yeah, I would say that that Milan was a little bit like uh, the Real Madrid of the of this decade, in the sense that uh, they prioritize the best possible success rather than the day-to-day performances. And uh, that Milan took that to probably the most uh, exaggerated points uh, because they won two Champions League and only one Serie A title. I mean, that is very disproportionate. But at the same time, if you look at the 04-05 season, I mean, Sasha, they had... back. Yeah, sorry. I was. Thanks for talking. No, I, no. I don't. I, I no, genuinely apologies. like. I started speaking about that moment, and I just. <laughs> that, that was what, really nice, uh, what makes you? What, <laughs> what makes really it all nice. come back for you, Sasha? Oh, just, just, just the emotion, the friends, just, the, just the whole, the emotional roller coaster of a game that will never be repeated. I'll never like. Ex- I've never experienced anything like that ever again. I've seen great Liverpool wins. I've seen them beat Barcelona, but in terms of going 120 minutes, maybe even the whole concept of the whole that that whole week. It's just something that will never be repeated. But if I go to my point about Milan, Milan were actually in the middle of a very tense and tight title race with Juventus that season. I mean, in fact, it was such a tight race, such a competitive league that uh, a year later they declared that there will be no champion. Um, and um, perhaps they were up against teams in, in, in Serie A that they physically could not compete every year on both fronts because the competition was so high in Italy at the time. Uh, I mean, if you look at Liverpool, for example, in, in 04-05, they knocked the league on the head in, in throughout those playoffs. They actually directly prioritised. Well, right. I don't think perhaps Milan, were, 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 Milan could have sustained it on both fronts. There you go then. For 114 minutes of the 120, Milan had been the better side. But that six minutes was enough to seal an extraordinary win. Liverpool took the trophy home permanently but back in the Premier League finished fifth below Everton level on points with big Sam's Bolton didn't you end up pushing Everton out of the qualifying spots as a result no so so what happened that was actually quite controversial at the time because the year before uh, when Arsenal and Chelsea were going deep into the Champions League the FA made a decision on 10th of March that should one of these teams win and not finish in the top four they will take the fourth spot and what Liverpool were very sore about is uh, in early May, uh, it was said that Everton will take the fourth spot. So there was clearly an inconsistency. Of course, Alvaro, you'd know about the time Real Madrid got in instead of Saragossa. Um, so effectively, I think at the time, it was left to the national FA to decide who takes the fourth spot. What the FA, I think, did, which was, I think, quite unfair, is they basically had UEFA over the barrel about this whole thing. I think there was no way UEFA would not readmit Liverpool. They had to find a way to let them back in, and they end up changing the rules. So effectively, I think England forced a fifth place upon UEFA, which I don't think should have happened. By the way, UEFA Cup that year, this might get emotional as well. There was a Russian triumph <laughs> at the Jose Alvalade in Lisbon. CSKA Moscow winning their only European trophy ever, beating Sporting Lisbon 3-1 on their home ground. Well, at the time, this was completely unexpected. They had no European pedigree at all. Uh, they, I think, went past the first round twice or something prior to this. So there was nothing really that said that CSK should be going out and doing this. Of course, in hindsight, uh, you can see that they were actually making a very strong side because you had the two Berezuskis, very young Akinfeyev and Ignashevich, so the back four uh, that would stay with CSK for, I think, about 12 or 14 years. The big, other big major factor was the two Brazilians, Carvalho uh, in midfield and Wagner Love up front, who basically just... Wagner Love. Wagner Love, who apparently currently is being linked to the return to CSK in Moscow, which is, sounds completely nuts. I don't, know, I, I don't know what they're thinking, if it's actually serious, but... Uh, Can't get enough of your love. <laughs> I, th- I think a, fa- a shout-out goes to PSG. Uh, who bottled it against uh, uh, CSK in the final group game um, and failing to beat 10 men and losing 3-1. Sergei Simak scored. And then, of course, in the finals, CSK Moscow play at the Jose Alvalade. So, effectively, it's like an away game for them in the final. They're 1-0 down at halftime, and then Carvalho sets up three goals. And also, there's a horrendous miss for Sporting at 2-1. They go down the other end, and I think it's it's Wagner Love who, uh, who puts the the final goal on, on scoreboard. So basically, it, it is also a winning adversity, which then gave, I think, this um, CSK Moscow side over the years uh, a lot of, I think what South Americans would say, gara. They were a very, very hard team to beat. They never really gave up. 
must have mentioned as well the history before this is quite tragic because in 1952 the whole team got disbanded for failing uh, in, in the Olympics and they never really recovered for that in 50 years they only won two titles and two cups before this new era of success came in the 21st century so it's it's it's, it's quite a tale actually if you look at it and of course for, for Russia uh, this was the first time any actually post-Soviet team won the UEFA Cup um, so it's it was it was a big thing and then Zenit came later and Shakhtar came and won it for Ukraine so I think I think it's quite quite a breakthrough moment Thanks, Sasha. Well, that was European football 2004-2005. Woof. Next, we're going to talk about more of this weekend's football. Imagine a world, a world just like our own, but importantly, not our own. Is it the alternate dimension or are we? And does it have podcasts? The Last Post. Hi, I'm Alice Fraser, bringing you daily news from a parallel universe. It's a sweet, sweet dose of satirical news coverage, some of which will sound pretty familiar. He defended him, saying he broke the lockdown rules on a father's instinct. And I just think if Boris had shielded his d- as much as he's shielding Cummings, he might actually be in a position to give parenting tips. And some of it is just pretty weird. Air in space is becoming much clearer, Alice. And it's quite shocking because there is no air in space. It's empty space. So join me every single day alongside great comedians from around the world, including Andy Zaltzman, Nish Kumar, Tiff Stevenson and Will Anderson. Good luck to you. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Right, listen, next weekend, City Hour returns this Friday, though. It'll be the Coppa Italia that gets things back underway. It's the semi-finals... Uh, second legs, three months on from the first legs, which saw Milan and Juve draw 1-1 and Napoli winning 1-0 at San Siro. Not the longest pause, by the way, in Copper fixtures ever. I read that back in the 1926-27 season, well, they're actually still waiting to finish those last 16 fixtures because half of them got played, but then they'd reached the end of July and they ran out of time. But anyway, back to this season... And, and Napoli 1-0 up at San Siro. Could they be the favourites in this competition, James? You look back at, at the start of the season and, and their expectations were to challenge for the title. And then uh, the team goes and mutinies against Carlo Ancelotti. Ancelotti gets the sack. And to be honest, Gattuso has kind of steadied the ship since then. And uh, they have been uh, pretty damn good when it comes to the, the big occasions. You, know, you look back even pre-Gattuso, they, they got four points out of six against Liverpool. Um, they beat Juventus in the league. They beat Lazio. They've obviously beaten Inter in the first leg of this game. So, uh, in in some respects, uh, fear fear Napoli in this game. Also, I think the the team has kind of really kind of come together and rallied around Gattuso. We had some tragic news last week with the uh, the, the death of his sister, uh, thirty seven. Um, but I think what we've got in these is in these Serie A semi-finals is. Is, is big games wherever you look. You know, Milan against Juventus and Napoli against uh, Antonio Conte's Inter, who, you know, at the moment are nine points adrift of Juventus in the, in the title race, albeit with a game in hand. Um, and I suppose this is another opportunity for them to show kind of they're making progress by winning a trophy for the first time in, in what, nine years. And it's important as well for Juve because um, during this decade they've been the, the masters of this competition, Coppa Italia. They've been wearing the cocarda, it's called, right? Uh, the, the little cocada, symbol. Yeah. yeah, they've been wearing the cocarda for uh, for most of the decade. Uh, they are not wearing it now because they didn't win the competition last year. And uh, it's important for Cristiano Ronaldo as well because he won all the domestic titles in Spain, all the domestic titles in England. And this is the only domestic Italian title that he's got left to win. It's big for Sarri as well because um, yeah, they they had a chance to win some silverware in December against uh, against Lazio in the Super Cup and they lost that. Um, Sarri is still yet to win a, a major honour in Italy, aside from the the Serie D Coppa Italia, which he won with San Sovino back in uh, back in the day. Um, so yeah, event is still on for a treble. I think uh, it's important for them to to come back um, with. Uh, with a win um, again to kind of gain well not gain confidence because they're still one point ahead against uh, above Lazio but remember when the the pandemic um, hit and the season was interrupted regardless of the fact that Juventus beat Inter in the in the Derby d'Italia the momentum seemed to be with Lazio um, in the league so Friday night and if they get through against Milan he'll be without Zlatan who's suspended and injured and has been uh, 
in the headlines this morning um, after Ivan Gazidis uh, apparently showed up at Milanello to say that the, the players would be obliged to take a 50% wage cut for uh, their pay in April. And uh, Ibra was like, oh, now you turn up. <laughs> it's too late. So a bit of tension uh, there. And uh, Milan also without Teo Hernandez has been one of the revelations of the season in Serie A as well with, uh, you know, up until recently, or recently before the season stopped, he was their top scorer until Rebic caught fire and Ibrahimovic joined. Will they be having virtual fans, do you know, at San Paolo or, or at the uh, Allianz Stadium? I don't think so. I think at the moment um, it will be played out uh, as it is. Um, at San Paolo, which, to be honest, looks quite nice after the, was it the University Olympics that they held um, last summer? Sort of blue and yellow seating. I'm sure we'll see some kind of uh, attempt to to fill the, the, the stands either with crowds later on before the end of the season because of some big games in Serie A towards the end, particularly Juventus Lazio. Um, of course, we saw years and years ago, remember when Triestina, I think, were in the second or third division and they were no longer filling the... I think the Nerea Rocco Stadium, and they they famously put up tarp, which depicted a crowd, which caused right. all kinds of controversy at the a time. Lot of, a lot of clubs are doing that at the moment. Of course, Arsenal had one or two issues with theirs. San Paolo, though, is probably the stadium that is going to be least affected in mm. televisual terms by not having spectators in because there's never the camera angle. You never see anybody anyway. When they cut to the upper tier, exactly. fine. Anyway, so Friday night is Juve against Milan. It was one one San Siro. Saturday then. You can follow on BT Sport with James and myself, Napoli, hosting Inter at San Paolo, one goal up from the leg at uh, San Siro. And before that, we'll have a couple of Bundesliga games as well. Speaking of which, we'll get on to a quick look at the Bundesliga weekend right after we've heard from Lee Price with Ben Green. Muchas gracias, Jimbo, and all our listeners, and all our Lee Price from Pedro Power. Lee, uh, we're going to leave the Bundesliga behind for this section and look ahead to the returning La Liga. Go on, entertain us. What are the odds, please, on a double of Barcelona and Real Madrid both losing this weekend? <laughs> See, this is why I love you deeply, Ben. Even after lockdown and all that's entailed, your spirit hasn't been diminished. You're still chasing the long shot. Um, and this is a long shot, as you might imagine. Barcelona are 1-4 to four to win the Mallorca, who are 9-1 to one to win at home. Uh, ouch. Real Madrid 2-9, to nine, similar price to Barcelona, actually to win at home to Ibar, who are 11-1 to, to put off the shock. So put those two shocks together, 11-1 to one, nine to 9-1, and you get odds of 119-1 to one that both Barcelona and Real Madrid lose on their first match back post-lockdown. And actually, stranger things have happened, haven't they? Obviously, one of those two teams is going to win the title in Spain. But um, humour us, who's going to finish fourth this season? Hmm, the top of the Liga looks very, very tight, doesn't it? you clearly got a title race there. Jealous. And then five teams below them are competing realistically for third and fourth place. Sevilla third, Sociedad fourth at the minute. Uh, Sevilla odds on 4-11 to to finish in the top four. Sociedad, though, we think will drop out. Atletico, who we're tipping to overtake them, they're 2-5 to to finish top four, despite being a point behind Sociedad. Getafe are in fifth at the minute, level point of Sociedad, they're 23-10 to to finish top four. Or Valencia, way back in seventh, a mighty four points behind, are 17-2 to to finish in the top four. That feels kind of generous, though. One good result this week, and it's all change. And finally, lots of people picking Bayern Munich to uh, be the European champions this season. But uh, could a Spanish team win the Champions League? Well, the honest answer, Ben, is that we just can't see it happening. It's 16-5. to 5. There's a Spanish winner of the Champions League, with Bayern, after their recent exploits, the favourites to win it. Barcelona lead La Liga's charge. They're 6-1, to one, but they do have to get past Napoli first. Easier said than done. Atletico are perennial dark horses, of course, and they're 12-1 to one appropriately. But I'm not sure who's going to score their goals. Surely not Alvaro Morata. Real Madrid, meanwhile, are probably the longest price you're ever likely to see them to win the Champions League. They're 35-1. to one. We can't see them turning around against City, although a certain Eden Hazard will be back. And he's pretty good, isn't he? You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Bundesliga, as you're probably aware, listener, seven points between Bayern in first place and Dortmund in second. Dortmund now opening up a slight margin over the other contenders for top four places. They're four points clear of Leipzig in third. Borussia Mönchengladbach are three back in fourth, but they're only ahead of... Uh, by Leverkusen on goal difference and Gladbach this weekend 
have to visit Bayern Munich. Yikes. Bayern Munich are on a 12-game winning streak. They haven't actually lost a game since the 7th of December. 21 matches since then, 20 wins, one draw. But who was the team who beat them back on the 7th of December? Why, of course, Borussia Mönchengladbach. That tells you as well that uh, well, Gladbach can be very good at times, but they made a massive mistake losing last Friday against Freiburg because they knew that Leverkusen was playing against Bayern. Uh, there was a chance for Gladbach to uh, get some point advantage. They didn't capitalize. And uh, now Gladbach is in this uh, very uncomfortable situation of having to play against Bayern. And I know that Bayern won't have uh, Thomas Müller and Robert Lewandowski for this game. Mm. But still, their firepower is astonishing. I mean, they are on course to beat the the record of goals set in 71-72 season with 101 goals. Bayern has scored already 90. So Gladbach is not the most convincing team defensively in the Bundesliga. And I think that Bayern is going to punish them badly. Yeah, absolutely. Rafa will be joining me on BT Sport for those games. I think the other one we're doing is Dortmund at Dusseldorf. Dusseldorf are in the relegation playoff spot at the moment, managed by Uwe Rosler, of course. Sash, you a fan of Bayern? Maybe you're not a fan of Bayern, but they're pretty amazing to watch right now. We we talked about how great that Liverpool side was, how great that Milan side was. This right now is one of the great one of the great lineups, I think. Just the effortless, the, the way they play football and swap, so swat aside any opposition at the moment is, is, is absolutely extraordinary. You also mentioned the depth. But like every game, every time they go forward at the moment, it seems like they, they, they're likely to score. And I don't really see, given the way Menchen Gladbach tried to walk the ball in last week against Freiburg and then fell apart after they conceded, I don't really see them offering any resistance at all. So I think, I think the title, and people have been saying it's gone. I think yeah, it, it is long gone. My interest in the Bundesliga is towards the end of the table, uh, Union Berlin, uh, who have been very, very unimpressive. But I think it all might come down to the last day when Dusseldorf face Union Berlin in the, in the 34th round of games. But I think, I think it's, it's very tight there at the bottom. And I think you, you can actually see in the Bundesliga again with everything stripped away, I think you can see that the lower half of the Bundesliga, the quality isn't really quite there uh, without the fans and the entourage. And I, I think a lot, I mean, people like to make these comparisons, but I think a lot of these teams would struggle to make an impression against similar uh, sort of level in the table Premier League size. I, I, don't, I don't think the quality is there at all, to be honest. This is an important game for the relegation uh, because if Paderborn mm-hmm. loses and Fortuna Dusseldorf wins, uh, they will go down to, to the second division of German football. And I agree with Sasa. I think that the mid-table teams and the low-table teams in the Bundesliga, they've been quite disappointing uh, after the resumption. Yeah, uh, There is very little uh, positive to take from some of the clubs. Well, you can judge for yourselves this weekend on BT Sport. We will be returning with the Totally Football Show on Sunday evening probably with you on Monday morning that and we'll be rounding up all the key events from all that stuff and of course looking forward to the return of the Premier League that Wednesday crikey for now it's many thanks to James Horncastle Alvaro Romeo and Sasha Gurionov for an intense look back and forward and sideways and all sorts of other stuff listener thanks for being part of it too we'll catch up with you soon cheerio You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.